Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. Last two weeks, we've uh, focused our attention on uh, the last nine chapters, uh, looking at, uh, of course, we haven't looked at them yet, but uh, an introduction to what this last section of the book of Ezekiel is all about. And so our, our introduction to this chapter was two weeks long, but I believe it was necessary, especially as we get into this uh, passage tonight, and uh, that we'll see the importance of studying the Word of God in a literal prophetic way, in a literal prophetic approach. We talked about that two weeks ago. And, uh, and so the things that we are going to focus on in these last nine chapters are a new temple, a new worship, and a new land. That's kind of the basic outline. But here in verse 1 of chapter 40 of Ezekiel, it says, In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that the city was smitten, that is, the city of Jerusalem, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither, which means he brought me there, brought me there to, uh, in, in a vision, brought him, Ezekiel, to Jerusalem. And the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. As we now enter into our exposition of the 40th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy after two weeks of necessary introduction to the last nine chapters of the book, it remains crucially important to our understanding of following this literal prophetic approach of studying the scriptures simply because these last nine chapters are one of the most neglected parts of the Bible. It is neglected primarily because there are many who consider this section completely uh, allegorical, completely symbolic, many times referring to the temple that is going to be uh, talked about uh, as the church, that the temple is symbolic of the church. And it gives them another reason to declare that the Lord has replaced Israel with the church. And yet it is vitally imperative ne never to forget that the two previous chapters, the two previous chapters placed their focus 
on Gog and Magog, chapters 38 and 39. They place their focus on Gog and Magog and the invasion and attack on Israel by, in all appearances, primarily Muslim countries. Now, if you remember uh, a few months back when we studied Psalm 83, there was an inner group of nations that were going to attack Israel, and uh, those would be those that were up right up against Israel, Egypt and Syria or, or uh, Jordan and up in the north, Lebanon, and, and uh, then, of, of course, so, so all of those uh, surrounding Israel would attack Israel, and then they would be uh, defeated by God. And, and, of course, the same scenario happens in this Gog-Magog scenario where the outer portion of, of nations against Israel, Turkey, uh, Russia, uh, the... Uh, uh, primarily Muslim nations like uh, Turkestan and uh, Afghanistan and uh, all the Stan nations uh, that are mentioned, uh, all of those as well as some of the northern uh, African tribes or countries are all going to come on this particular Gog-Magog uh, invasion and they're going to be defeated by, by God as well. Now why do I bring that up? Well, because that in itself, just that war mentioned before chapter 40, not to mention that uh, chapter 37 can only refer to the resurrection of the dry bones as being the nation of Israel, is just too current, it is just too contemporary to disregard. We cannot disregard those things and all of a sudden say then chapter 40, everything becomes allegorical, everything becomes symbolic. And so there is much that is being ignored in this final section of the book of Ezekiel because it is seen as allegorical and symbolic. They have chosen to use that approach of studying the scripture. But when you begin to study the passage, especially the first four verses of chapter 40, there is nothing allegorical or symbolic about it. Let's, let's look at verse 1. In the 5 and 20th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after the, that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that Ezekiel was one who was very careful about notating days and times and dates. He was very specific about when he was receiving visions from God. That in itself is saying, look, this is literal. This is not symbolic. So when we begin to look at chapter 40, if there is a central theme to uh, the, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, it would probably be called the restoration of Jewish worship. The restoration of Jewish worship, not the restoration of Gentile worship, not the restoration of church worship, the restoration of Jewish worship. Because we're dealing with the house of Israel. We're dealing with the house of Israel and Judah put together back as one, as God has always intended them for them to be. And he speaks to them in terms of what they understand. What do they understand? There's gonna be a temple. They understand that they are to worship God, the one true God, and to worship him according to the way that he prescribes for them. 
to worship them. And then the third thing is that they are going to also receive the land that has been given to them in inheritance and by inheritance. So that, of course, would be debated. It would be debated by revisionists, you know, revisionists of the history of the scriptures and of, of, the, of, of the, the biblical history as, as it was as, and as it is, by replacement theology followers. They would debate that because they would say, no, 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 Israel's already been replaced. I don't know about you, but I, I don't think Israel has been replaced at all, both in the scriptures and in modern life. There are still Jews in the world today, contrary to what some people wish had happened back in the 30s, like, you know, who we're talking about. That didn't happen. Why? Because God was going to resurrect that nation, those dry bones of chapter 37, going to resurrect them and become a new nation once again. So the very presence of a temple the very mention and the very presence of a temple in the history of Israel is not only significant, but greatly mentioned in scripture and necessary. It is necessary for the church of Jesus Christ to be familiar with that importance. Sadly, we know little about this theme. So that's why we study verse by verse through the book of Ezekiel and have taken our time because there's things that we do not want to miss. So consider that the word temple itself, is it an important word to the Jewish people? Yes, it is. They wept every time a temple was destroyed, primarily because of their own sin. God came and judged them and then the, you know, their own temple was destroyed. Then they would rebuild the temple. You know, the temple that was rebuilt during the time of Zerubbabel and, and, uh, and Nehemiah and, uh, and Ezra. <laughs> that was just putting brick upon brick and upon brick, you know, and they just put the temple up there. It didn't look pretty, but they had a temple because they knew that that's where they were to worship God. Temple was very important. So consider the word temple. Now, we're not talking synagogues here, okay? That's, that's a modern, kind of a modern word. Talking temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion where God wanted his temple to be. So, the word temple itself is mentioned 204 times. If you're taking notes, write these things down. 204 times in the scriptures. Temple is used or mentioned 204 times in the scriptures, 204. 117 of those are in the New Testament. So do you think that God wants us to know about the temple of Israel? Of course he does. 117 times out of the 204 are in the New Testament. And then there's the phrase, the temple of the Lord. That's found in the scriptures 24 times, one time in the New Testament, the temple of the Lord. And then there's the phrase, the temple of God. And that's mentioned in the scriptures nine times, the temple of God. While the more mobile tabernacle, we've all heard of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was something that they could carry with them. The, the, the people were to build, the, you know, when they were in the wilderness experience after Egypt, uh, God gave them the, the plans to, to make a, a, a tabernacle, which is a temporary dwelling place. Well, the word tabernacle is important because that's where the people were to worship God while they were out in the wilderness. 
Well, the word tabernacle is mentioned 328 times in Scripture, 20 times in the New Testament. But there are other titles and names to know that refer to a place uh, of, of worship. Uh, oftentimes we'll see the, the, the phrase holy place. That's mentioned 60 times. And then there's most holy place. That's mentioned 24 times. And then there is the most holy place. That's mentioned 10 times, just that way. All right, so there's the most holy place and the most holy place. And it is also called the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is mentioned 234 times in scripture. And then there's also mount and holy mount. And those apply to the issue of where the people were to worship. And then there comes one more word, a word of importance. And it's important to us too. It's the word sanctuary, sanctuary. We sometimes loosely call this area of the church building the sanctuary. And that's okay. And it should be called that because this is where we meet with God. This is where we together as one body who gather, as the scripture says, where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst, while well, we, want, we want him to be in the midst of us. So we gather here to worship God, we gather here to praise God, we gather here to learn of God, we gather here to encourage one another. We, we gather here to be one voice, with one, with one voice, one heart, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, to be the church that God has created us to be. So sanctuary is an important word. So it's a word, by the way, we know also that it's cheapened. We don't cheapen it because we, we believe, you know, if we consider this a sanctuary, then we know that this is where we worship God. But hey, in the world, the word sanctuary has been cheapened by politicians. Cheapened for, you know, to they call a place to hide or protect certain people. You know, they call them sanctuaries. But the root word strongly suggests holiness. That's why the word has been cheapened in our day and time. The word sanctuary comes from the word, well, and, you know, it, when you translate it over into the, into the Latin, it becomes sanctus, which is holy nonetheless. Holy. Holiness. Holiness unto the Lord. Sanctuary, a holy place to worship God. The root word strongly suggests holiness, which is sanctify, you know, sanctity, to sanctify. It means to set apart. It means to be holy and separate from the things of the world. It is a word found 137 times in scripture, 21 of which are in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. Sanctuary. 21 times in the last nine chapters of this book. And so with these things in mind, our text indicates that the Lord gave Ezekiel a vision of a new temple. It was such a momentous and weighty moment in Ezekiel's life as the hand of the Lord touched him. Now, you know, that is such a, a beautiful statement there at the end of verse 1. We're given the time frame, the five and 20th year, uh, the 10th day of the month, the 
14th year after that the city was smitten. We had all that information, that's important. But then he says, at that moment, the hand of the Lord was upon me. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me hither. Now there's a picture here. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me here. Sounds like a snatching. That's a word that we should not forget. How God snatches us and takes us where he wants us to be. But it's his hand. This is the hand of God. This is the hand of the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the hand of the God who is holy, holy, holy. This is the hand of the God who is a God of love and mercy and grace and truth. And Ezekiel says, his hand was upon me and brought me here. Would it not draw you even closer to the Lord and ever closer to the Lord as his hand comes upon you. The fact of the matter is, each and every one of us, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we surrender our lives to the creator of heaven and earth, he puts his hand on us. Sometimes he snatches us, moves us, but most of the time, he just touches us. He lets us know that we're not alone. He lets us know that we have a plan, that he has a plan for us. We have a plan that's all his. That's a good plan to have, his plan. Book of Proverbs always talks about the fact that man, you know, makes their own plans and, and all, but it's the Lord. It's the Lord that dictates. It's the Lord, truly, if we trust him, no matter what plans we may make, it's the Lord that either solidifies them or tweaks them or changes them or completely removes them in case they're just not what he wants. But he's always looking after our better interest. He's always looking out for you, by the way. He, uh, he's always looking out for you. And he always wants you to come back. He always wants you to be with him. That's why this hand, this statement of the, of the hand of the Lord being upon Ezekiel is so important. It isn't just because Ezekiel's a prophet. It's because God has called Ezekiel, just as he's called you and me and each and every one of us that is called should at one time or another know the touch of the hand of God. Now, Ezekiel had been a captive in Babylon for 25 years, as the text tells us. He had been taken captive, uh, he had been taken captive in exile to Babylon with, with all uh, the, the rest that had come with him. There were, there were actually three exiles, but uh, uh, he was taken captive to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar squashed Judah's revolt in 597 
BC. And so the vision was received by Ezekiel in 572 BC, which was 14 years actually after Babylon's mighty army destroyed Jerusalem in 586. So that's, that's really just kind of setting it, uh, you know, as far as chronologically for us to understand. It was about 597 that the, that group of exiles came to Babylon. It was 572 that he receives the vision. So between that is 14 years when Jerusalem had fallen, 586. 14 or 13, kind of in between there. Let me read to you 2 Kings chapter 24 just to give you a little bit of an insight of, as to where it was and when it was and why it was that this captivity took place when it did. We're told in 2 Kings 24 verse 8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of, of Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So already you got a king that's, that's a wicked king, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and his princes, and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord. So this is what happened during that particular siege. He carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. That, that is a very sure defeat when even your mighty men are taken captive and that many to be taken into captivity uh, in, in a foreign land, in this case Babylon. So why is every date stressed? Why is every date stressed regarding God's visions given to Ezekiel that he might give them to the people? Every date that deals with God's visions in the book of Ezekiel. We talked about those when we got to them, but this is just review. But the Lord through his prophet, and this is the reason, the Lord through his prophet wanted the reality of the vision to be without question and doubt. And Ezekiel certainly knew that his fellow Jewish exiles were in great need of encouragement. So there was the one thing about reality of the vision that the vision was not just allegorical, the vision was not just symbolic, it was not just pointing to a time previous or, or historical, you know, so there were, those, were the other, those were the other approaches in the way people study the scriptures. It wasn't about the history, it wasn't about the allegory, it wasn't about the symbolism, it was about reality. 
So that's important for us to understand when we look at things literally in the scriptures. And then the second thing was because he knew it was important to, to mark these times down because God was giving him not only the reality of what was taking place, but also the coming restoration of Israel, the coming restoration of the people and the coming restoration of the land. That was significant to make sure that they had a thing to look back at to say, this is the time that God said, you are going to be restored. Now we know from Isaiah and from Jeremiah that when the people finally went into captivity, they were gonna be in captivity for 70 years because that was what it was marked in for us in, in uh, uh, Jeremiah 29. But remember the problems that we've been seeing in the book of Ezekiel, the problems where the people were listening to false prophets that kept telling them, don't settle in, God's gonna take us home right away. Don't settle in. What they were saying was, God's a liar. He's not gonna keep us here seven years. No, God said, when 70 years are done, then I'm gonna restore you. So God's not lying. So why do we put that label on the Lord? You know, so that's what the people were doing. But he knew that these people needed encouragement. So he would, re he would receive the vision. He would let them know on this particular day, this is what God told, told me to tell you. They had been living in exile for a long, uh, 25 long, painful years. Their nation had been completely destroyed and their cities were reduced to rubble and ruin. Jerusalem and their temple had been burned to the ground and pillaged. And personally, they had lost most of their families, most of their neighbors, most of their friends during that particular war. Now that's painful. I don't know if all of us have, but maybe we know somebody that knows somebody that has lost somebody in, in battle or in war. Or we've been in the military ourselves to know people that have died in, in battle. You know, it's, it's painful. There's things that we remember, things we don't want to remember. But can you imagine a whole nation being taken captive in this manner? And the very men of valor, the ones that you depended upon to protect you and keep you are in chains and, 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 and with, with, with hooks in their noses. Because that's what the Babylonians did to transport them from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was painfully sad that a people that had become a great nation in the world under David and Solomon were no longer a nation at all, except in name. Everything they held dear had been lost. Their land, their homes, their wealth. And now they were being held captive in a strange foreign land. Now, from finite man, from finite man's perspective, the perspective of just an ordinary man or person, from finite man's perspective, there seemed to be no future for them as a nation. They were desperate for some word of encouragement and hope. They desperately needed to know that the Lord, their God, would indeed fulfill his promises to them. So I want you to take note of something. We're still back in verse one. Take note that the prophet received God's vision on the 10th day of the first month. That is the month of Nisan. The 10th day of the first month, the day 
the people were beginning to prepare for the feast of Passover. That's significant, folks. What do we know about Passover? The, the, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were captive to the Egyptians. They were slaves for 430 years. They lived the lives of, 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 of uh, torment as slaves. But on the night of Passover, what did God say he was going to do? He said, you go and you get yourselves a lamb, a one-year lamb, spotless lamb, and you take him and you slaughter him and you take the blood. Now, you're going to prepare a meal from the lamb, but you're going to take the blood and you're going to apply the blood on the doorpost and the lintel and the basin of the door. You're going to apply the blood on that house and when I come, if the blood is not applied on the house, death is going to come. But all who are behind the houses that have the blood, you'll be safe. I will pass over. That's why it's called Passover. The blood is looking ahead to what? The blood of Jesus Christ. The blood was applied in four places on that doorpost. The lintel on top, the two side posts, and the basin where the blood collected. What was that a picture of? The cross, the cross of Christ. So this is significant then. If the people understand that that date was so important. They were turning their attention now to God's marvelous deliverance from Egyptian bondage and to his wonderful promise of, of an eternal inheritance in the promised land. It was on that very day that, then that, that God spoke afresh to his people. He's speaking afresh to his people. To all who would listen, to all who would truly listen, and, by the way, not just listen, but believe. But they would believe what God was saying through his prophet. In spite of their seemingly hopeless situation as captives in Babylon, they really did have a bright future. God just wanted them to remember, hey, you remember your ancestors when they were in Egypt? That looked pretty hopeless, didn't it? Well, guess what? I brought them out. And I protected them. And I saved them and I delivered them. And even when Pharaoh came after them, I took them through the Dead Sea. I took them through death. <laughs> death, folks. He split the sea wide. And they walked through death, burial. The Dead Sea, it's actually the Red Sea, but it was dead in this, particular, in, in this particular case because that was a picture of burial. And they came out alive on the other side as a nation. And the only thing that was buried in the Red Sea was the Egyptian army and their horses and their chariots. And as critics have oftentimes said, well, the, 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 the Red Sea at that time, you know, they crossed at a certain place where it was 
Well, that you know, they crossed where it wasn't so wide. Well, that was smart. God told them where to cross, by the way. The other thing, too, is that if it, you know, everybody criticizes and says, well, you know, in that area, there was really probably about three feet of water. Well, isn't that the greater miracle? God would bury a whole nation under three feet of water? A whole army of, of, of the Egyptians in three feet of water? So God can do whatever he wants to do. Okay. No more confusion between the dead and the red. It was red, but they were dead. Okay, got it? All right. They have a bright future, folks. And we're told that the Lord, by a vision, took Ezekiel then to a very, very high mountain in Israel. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 of Ezekiel 40. In the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain. Now remember, these are in, in visions, but nonetheless, God has taken him there to see it. So he says, and he set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. Very interesting little phrase. We're gonna come back to that when I'm gonna be talking about modern day uh, uh, considerations about the, where the temple is gonna be. And he brought me thither and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of a brass, of brass with a line of flax in his hand and measuring reed and he stood in the gate. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get back to that one in a minute, but let's look at verse two. <clears throat> Excuse me, so let's keep in mind then that Ezekiel ministered to the captives in Babylon when he was ministering, he was ministering in, uh, in Babylon by the river Kebar, the river Kebar. And once again, the Lord takes him from there by vision to Israel. Now remember, he's taken him before. He's taken him right into the very temple in Jerusalem at the time before it was completely destroyed. So, so remember, the city was destroyed in 586, and now around 573 or 572, he is taken and shown the land of Israel. Only now will it be restored, and in this land there will be a glorious temple. So we know that he is preparing him to give this bright, hopeful message to the people. Now, it is not certain which was the very high mountain that Ezekiel was taken to, except that it may very well be, or it may very well have been, what we know as the mount called Moriah, M-O-R-I-A-H, Moriah. Now, Moriah and Moriah, M-A-R-I-A-H, are very similar and very close in, in, in meaning and understanding. But primarily, for example, the name Miriam comes from that word, and, and that, mean, that means bitter, uh, like a bitter soul or a bitter heart. Moriah is literally, kind of, literally saying the bitterness of, uh, of the Lord. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting name, Moriah. But um, I only mention that in the fact that um, this is where uh, Abraham had taken Isaiah in obedience to the Lord. And it quite may be, it might quite possibly may be that the name is reflective of, of the bitterness that the Lord may have towards the, toward the, the sin of man that, that brought us to have to have his son come and take our place on the cross. Moriah would be a bitter place in the fact that it was there where Jesus on the cross had said, 
my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there, there's these just little things and details that we can talk about. But let's, let's look at the, the fact that it was on Moriah that uh, we're told in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Now, it doesn't state it primarily here. It states the land of Moriah, but of course it would mean the land where Moriah is. So it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, which means he tested him. Uh, and he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. And no, do you see the picture here? It, it's, a, it, it's a type of, of, of Christ going to the cross. Isaac is a type of Christ. Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. One of the mountains. Now, for it to be the very high mountain that is referred to, were it to be compared to the plains of Babylon, for instance, uh, Moriah would be very high in terms of the plains of Babylon where uh, Ezekiel was. Then it was certainly very high in terms of its moral elevation. The moral elevation of Moriah would be very high indeed. Uh, something already referred to, by the way, in Ezekiel's prophecy. Let's go back, if you will, to Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Because the idea of this high place for God to be worshiped uh, is significant. So in Ezekiel 17, verse 22, it says, Thus saith the Lord God. Now this is being said as a reminder that eventually because of all the things that Israel has done, they're going through their captivity, but at some point they will be restored. So he says, Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent. A high mountain. And then if you go to chapter 20, and notice what it says there in verse 40. Ezekiel 20, verse 40. It says, For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. He says, this is where I want my people to serve me. There will I accept them, and notice this, and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. So what is being said here is that this is where God wants his people to worship him on this particular high mountain. Now, if you turn to Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, notice what it says here. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, this is going way beyond, you know, the time of Ezekiel. But it's also pointing to the time that God has been telling him to point them to. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And there's reference upon reference that the place that the nations are going to flow into is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Well, what is the house of the Lord if it isn't the temple? It is the temple. He says, Come and let us go up to the, the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, I'm not going to talk about Zion tonight, but we're going to talk a lot about Zion in the next few weeks. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So now all of this terminology will be all the more significant as we consider the temple and its proposed location. I'm not going to, put, I'm not going to talk about it tonight, but we are going to talk about it unless the Lord comes and takes us home. But, you know, at some point, we're going to talk about it, Lord willing. So as we continue, Ezekiel is brought into the land of Israel and put upon the mountain from the north. And the reason I say that is because of the direction that he is looking at in verse 2. He says, And the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. So he is coming in, brought in probably from the north, and then he's looking in the south, southern direction. This is important, folks. I'll tell you why. Not everything I'm going to tell you about it today, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So he's coming facing south, as, as, as we're told, by which was the frame of a city on the south. In other words, the prophet saw a city-like frame, a city-like frame of the temple stretching southward, stretching southward. So he's facing south and he's seeing this frame of a city that is to be the temple area. And this very well may be significant in respect to the location of the Temple Mount, which most people believe is on the location of what is called the Dome of the Rock, that big golden dome that, that, that's, uh, that's a, a Muslim holy site, uh, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But again, more of that later, because the, the location you all heard that the, the three most important things is location, location, location. Well, in this particular case, it is very important that we understand that there's still a need to know where the temple is going to be. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring some views, and some are going to be a little bit alternative views of things that are happening today, but it's all going to be exciting because what it's, what it's doing is it's bringing us to the realization that these things are real. And the excavations that are taking place in Israel today, aside from the Temple Mount that's already there, the excavations that are taking place in Israel today are going to be very significant as to where the temple that is going to be built during the time of the Antichrist or before the time of the Antichrist, which can be at any time. It, it can happen in any moment. These things are significant. So we're not looking at years and years of time, maybe a few years, but not that many years. So anyway, this is important for our, our, a later discussion, and we'll talk about it then. So there he is. He's seeing this, this city-like frame where the temple is supposed to be. And in verse 3, he says, 
And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. And let me just say that this more than likely is an angelic being. The appearance of brass in itself is significant because brass is a symbol of judgment. So there is some judgment that's going to be involved in all of this. But at this point in time, he has a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold, with thine eyes and hear with thine ears, and set thy heart upon all that I shall show thee, for to the in intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought here. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. So the Lord brought Ezekiel close up. In other words, he brought him up close and personal to this frame that he saw to inspect it in detail. Because this is where he sees this messenger or this man. So he's brought up close. He's not just hovering and looking. Now he's brought up close and he has someone that speaks to him. I want you to compare this, if you will, to a verse in Revelation chapter 21. Because in Revelation chapter 21, we also see that the apostle John was carried or taken to a place by God, just like Ezekiel was. Revelation 10, I'm sorry, Revelation 21 verse 10, and he carried me away. Notice what it says, he carried me away. Well, that's the hand of the Lord getting on John and snatching him out of there. Carried him away uh, in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Sound familiar? Sound just like what Ezekiel. By the way, at some point in time in the last year or so, whenever, whenever it was when we started Ezekiel, sometime in between all that time, I had mentioned to you how closely related Ezekiel is to, to John. And, and that in the prophetic sense, uh, John and the Revelation and Ezekiel, the prophecy. So he said, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So Ezekiel sees something that is yet to happen. John sees it completed. Interesting, isn't it? So there is an interesting comparison then. It's actually a comparison contrast that can be made between this vision given to Ezekiel in chapter 40 and the opening vision given to the same prophet Ezekiel in chapter 1. I don't want you to have to go all the way to chapter 1, so let me just explain what's going on. In the, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, remember that he received visions, and he was seeing visions. I mean, these were wild, wild visions, you know. But he saw visions by the river Kabar because the Lord had forsaken Jerusalem. I mean, they're already in captivity. They're in captivity, and the Lord is showing his glory to Ezekiel and preparing him to minister to his people that are in captivity. But understand that he is giving them this vision there in Babylon because the Lord had forsaken Jerusalem. The vision there for the people was to inspire fear and terror. Now, he's taken to the mount of God. He's taken to the mountain of God and the Lord has returned there as well with him because the Lord took him there. And, and for this vision, 
was expected to inspire godly fear, hope, and assurance. That's the contrast. When the, when the prophecy begins, it was to say to the people, listen, you need to know that I am the Lord God. Yes, you need to have a godly fear, but you keep going in the direction you're going and you're gonna be judged. And you're already being judged, but you're still listening to false prophets. You're still going off the, you know, off the tracks. You're not staying with me. But now he takes him to Jerusalem and he's there with him because there's going to be restoration. And so he wants to inspire the people to godly fear, to godly hope, and godly assurance. So in verses 3 and 4 of our text, Ezekiel saw a man with a radiant appearance, shining like bronze. So there's some sense of, of, of an end-time judgment person or being that's going to be uh, uh, playing a major role here. But he's indicating that he was a special angelic messenger that the Lord had sent to guide Ezekiel through the temple complex. Now this angelic messenger was standing in the gateway of the temple. He says he's standing at the gate, standing at the gateway of the temple, holding two measuring instruments. The first measuring instrument was a linen or flax cord, or what you would consider like a, like a measuring tape. So he had a measuring tape in one hand, but he also had a measuring rod. It was a rod or a stick of a certain length, probably of certain cubits uh, lengths, depending on how long they wanted to measure. The linen cord would probably be used for longer measurements because then you could extend a linen cord along long. Can you imagine that? We would have thought about that one, you know, uh, uh, I say in my generation, <laughs> way back then. They were around, but you know, man, they were like, like they are today. That's perilous, man. People are in the grip of an enslaving power of sin and Satan. They're in the grip of, of a lack of eternal purpose and meaning. Look at our kids today. The games that they play. And they're, and they're catatonic sometimes. And the enemy is just moving them in every kind of direction, but away from God, away from the things that are good, away from the things that are right and holy. And then we say, well, no, you know, we don't want to give them too much because, you know, they're, they're, they need safe places. No, I, they, they need a safe place, and the only safe place is heaven. The only safe place is with Jesus Christ. That's the only safe place. Talk about safe places. Uh, don't get me started. Then I will be here till midnight. All right. There are a lot of people in, in our midst in the grip of a sense of unfulfillment and dissatisfaction. And many are in the grip of disease and death. But all people are desperately in need of hearing about the love and the mercy and the grace and the truth and the power of Jesus Christ and his desire to deliver them from the bondages of this wicked world. 
It has been given to us as believers in the Messiah of Israel, in Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to proclaim God's saving power and promises to all the world. I want you to consider the testimony of David in Psalm 66, verses 16 through 20. Some people say, well, we don't know it's David. Well, we don't know that it isn't David. But listen to his, it sounds like his testimony. Listen to what he says. Come and hear all you that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. And then he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's testimony, folks. That is the testimony of a man that has gone up and down in his life, but it can say, listen, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me, but verily God has heard me. Why? Because God forgives sin. And in the presence of King Agrippa, Paul the apostle declared the words of Christ to him at his conversion. Paul, standing before this king, says to him, who uh, he's giving the testimony of, of when he meets Jesus uh, there on the road to Damascus and he said who art thou Lord uh, Paul said to, to Jesus and he said I am Jesus whom thou persecutest this is Acts 26 by the way verses 15 through 18 and he said I am Jesus whom thou persecutest but rise and stand upon thy feet for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose listen if it says for this purpose don't you think we ought to listen for this purpose, he says, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's testimony. Lastly, the Apostle Paul says to the Colossian church in Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14, giving thanks, he says, unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers, which means he's made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Anybody like that part? I do. I do. I need to be remembered. I need to be reminded, I should say. I need to be reminded of what Christ has done for me. I need to be reminded of what Jesus did on my behalf. I need to realize that that blood that Jesus shed has never lost its power to cleanse, to purify, to make us white as snow. Never lost its power, still does it today. So, the first four verses, we'll, ha we'll handle more verses next week. This is a long chapter, but 
Uh, there are a lot of details that we don't want to go over too fast, but it is important for us to realize the importance of the vision, the importance of the work that God is putting upon Ezekiel. And from that, the work that God is putting on our hearts for these last days.